When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains, there is a quiet, peaceful cemetery. This cemetery is exclusive, expensive, and in it, amongst the good and the great, lies the grave of a man called Michael Byrne, which I'm walking to with a man called Stephen McCarthy. Hi, my name is Steve, and we're going to walk to Michael Byrne's grave. Kilchernan Cemetery up here, close to the Wicklow Way, Ballycorus Road, very popular with cyclists on a Sunday morning. And Michael ended up here through the kindness and decency of an awful lot of people. This is fantastic because when we identified Michael Byrne's body this day a year ago, on his birthday, at the age of 71, I thought he'd go from there, where he slept for 30 years in UCD, over to a pauper's grave in Glasnevin, and that'll be the end of it. So here in the midst of these salubrious and exclusive surroundings is the grave of a homeless man a homeless man who lived on the grounds of a university of all things for decades of his life, gaining him the most affectionate of nicknames. From RT Documentary on One, this is Old Man Belfield. It's a testament to the character that Michael is that he ended up here. He was a man of dignity, a very quiet man, he lived his life very quietly, never upset anybody. And we're at his grave now. And the only thing we have on his grave is Old Man Belfield. He was known as Old Man Belfield. And his name is Michael Byrne, born 1949. He was 71 years of age when he died this day a year ago. As Michael lived rough on the sprawling Belfield campus in which University College Dublin lies, Steve's family looked after him quite literally for generations until one January day, his phone rang. So I was in work actually over in Ballymount and I got a phone call from the local guardie in Blackrock. Would I come down and identify the body? And I'm a bit upset about that now because I wasn't expecting it. But in a funny sort of way, I was expecting it because that previous six months to a year, Michael had got very, very slow. I drove and rang my wife and told her what had happened. And she said, well, I come up. I said, no, I'll go straight to UCD. And I met the guardie and they were there. It was cordoned off. And uh, they asked me to come on down and we'd go into where Michael was sleeping. And uh, yeah, Michael was there. It was sad. Big mop of grey hair on him transpired he'd had a heart attack. Now you may well ask what the big deal is of course people pass away especially in circumstances where their lives have been tough but there are two things about old man Belfield. One was the extraordinary impact he had on the lives of so many people of which there are many many accounts which you're about to hear but the other is that Michael Byrne had no discernible history. He left no footprint on the world. He's impossible to find in any of the official records. It was like before he turned up at Belfield, he didn't exist. Initially, I was contacted uh, by the Darkham One team uh, who wanted to know if I could help um, find some information on uh, this man, Oman Belfield. Damien O'Sullivan is obsessive about genealogy. He loves nothing more than finding out who people are and where they've come from. 
Working with us, Damien followed an exhaustive set of leads as we tried to establish the answer to one simple question. Who was Michael Byrne? We knew that uh, Steve McCarthy and his family had uh, looked after him for, for many years. And um, interestingly, Steve had been given permission by old man Benfield, Michael Byrne, to collect his pension for him in later years. So the first thing that struck me was, well, in order to have a pension, he has to have a PPS number. And where you have a PPS number, you have that linked to a date of a date of birth. And the date of birth that was linked to this guy was the 10th of January 1949. So it was to be a straightforward task. We have a name and a date of birth confirmed by a PPS number. The next simple step is for Damien to go to the General Register Office and pull Michael Byrne's birth certificate, on which will be his place of birth and the name of at least one parent, possibly even two. We were to learn that those first days in the Registry Office were to be a sign of things to come. Turned out on the day when we went, it, it didn't go as smoothly as planned. Um, we ended up visiting on two different occasions. Um, and between both days, we looked at records for 16 Michael Burns born in 1949 in Ireland. And unfortunately, none of them matched the date that we had been given. We also checked the English, Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish birth records. And again, there was no match there for a Michael Byrne born on January the 11th, 1949. Sensing this was going to be anything but straightforward, I go back to the grave to see if we can find out if there are any regular visitors who might give us a clue about Michael's identity. I realise as soon as I get talking to Rory, the cemetery manager, I'm in needle and haystack territory. Look, the flowers on it. These are all just people coming, putting flowers on it. And who are they? They're, everyone comes in. You wouldn't believe it now, you know? People that have loved ones buried up there, they'll visit their plot, then they'll come down to him. You know, people coming into the office all the time from Brazil, Italy, France, Germany. Where's old man Belfield? You know, but it's great to see them coming up. There's something very mysterious about him, you know. There's something about him that everyone was drawn to him. You know, I used to work in around UCD as a stone contractor and I'd meet him most mornings, you know. So if you'd see him, you'd, you'd give him, you know, your lunch or cigarettes or whatever, you know. He'd take the cigarettes, but not the lunch, the lunch, you know. But uh, there you go, he, he's, he's in a lovely spot there now. Right facing the lead mines, looking out at the lead mines. So it's a bit like where he used to live in around UCD. He's back in nature again, you know. And still no one knows who he was, you know. It's not hard to believe. There's three or four different types of plants on his plot here, all fresh. I mean, there's none on some of them, look, you know. Oh, he's a very visited plot. And we have people wanting to get plots beside him, you know? Yeah? He's very well known, you know? Like, look at all the students, I suppose, that went through UCD. And probably felt safe with him there. But uh, I'd, I'd love to know who was he, you know? Where, where did he come from? I don't think we'll ever know now. Unfortunately. It was clear that piecing together the jigsaw that was Old Man Belfield was going to be two-pronged. While Damien worked with us on his death and genealogy, the team was also trying to piece together his life. How did Michael Byrne live his daily life? Who did he know? What impact did he have on the world? And when we started asking these questions, a quite extraordinary picture began to emerge. It was hard to pinpoint what age he was, but I thought after 
you know, he might have been in his late 50s, early 60s. He kind of had long-ish, scraggly grey hair. Evie Nihudawan now works on the academic staff of UCD, but she also went to college there. I imagine he would have been quite a broad man in his youth, but instead of being broad, I think it was just layers of coats that made him look quite much bigger than he was. But he always had a long coat and generally big boots on him and just layers. That's what you'd notice, the layers. And he kind of shuffled around the campus and he had a very gentle look to him. He would be looking around, he might catch someone's eye, he might get a nod. But there was a lovely quietness about him, um, a kind of calm that just surrounded him, that it didn't matter how big or busy the campus was, there'd be just a little space around wherever he was, whatever he was passing through. So let's backtrack for a moment and establish what we do know about Michael before students like Evine started noticing him on the UCT campus. Well, Miriam McCarthy was Steve's mum and first stumbled across Michael in the 1970s. So Miriam, my mother and father, Sean, Miriam was a member of the Simon community and she came across Michael on a bit of wasteland up around Nutley there, opposite Vincent's Hospital on the Merrion Road. Uh, which has now been built and the Marion Shopping Centre is on it. But he was living in the wasteland there and as the developers moved in, Michael moved up towards UCD and my mother was always involved with Michael in getting him whatever facilities he needed, be it sleeping bags, food, making sure the soup run at night were in touch with him, that kind of thing. She was his coordinator and would have collected his, uh, his few bob every week. And he would then come to the house and they'd have a cup of tea ready for him and whatever. And Miriam would try and have a few words with him, but he never, ever spoke. The man never, ever spoke. There are witnesses to this, other than the family, the McCarthy family. And he never said a word to anybody. He had two favourite words, beginning with F and O, when he got annoyed. But, you know, they're in there often. Not too many people annoyed him. Michael was a man uh, who, who didn't... Who, who didn't approach anybody and very few people approach Michael and if they did they got a wink and a nod and a smile. But this family's relationship with old man Belfield, little could they have known, was about to span the generations and Steve remembers that he never ever missed his weekly appointment to pick up his pension. Rain, hail, sleet or snow, sunshine, Michael turned up. Slow enough as he was getting he would come down the road and he'd come to the house and I'd give him the few bob and a sandwich or whatever. But towards the end the sandwich became irrelevant. He didn't eat it. I noticed what he was doing, he was walking away with the sandwich and he was throwing it and feeding the birds who would come up behind him. And I used to end up sort of saying, the bird man was here today, but obviously not. But Michael then would head off on his business for the day. He, um, he would uh, head over to Spar where the guys were very good to him. They'd give him a roll, a sandwich, a cup of tea, but he'd buy his 20 fags. And that was his vice. And he loved his few cigarettes. Hi, my name is Aidan Cronnelly. Uh, I own the spa shop in Woodbine Park and the spa shop up in the Montrose. Um, I knew uh, Michael uh, from uh, just coming into the shop every uh, weekend morning and uh, he'd come in for his breakfast and a cup of tea and uh, his cigarettes. He used to come down here every, every uh, Saturday and Sunday morning and you'd set, you could set your clock by him. And then during the week he used to come up to the shop in the Montrose and we used to give him his breakfast up there as well. Um, Michael was an extremely quiet man. Uh, he certainly had all the appearance of being homeless, which he was, but he was the most gentle and softly natured individual. And in all the years that I've been here, I'm here about 23 years now, that I, I, I never heard him mutter a word until maybe his last few months where he sort of grunted and 
tried maybe tried to say a few things but through all the years I never every morning I said good morning to him and he'd just nod at me and you knew what he wanted and he, he was a real gentle he was a real gentle homeless man I have to say Although Michael mightn't have said much he knew what he liked on a breakfast roll We used to give him a breakfast roll every morning which would be two rashers uh, two sausages and some pudding in the roll a cup of tea and uh, he'd uh, and he used to buy uh, John Player Blue cigarettes it's only comfort in life, I would imagine. And then you'd always know that Mike was around because you'd see a trail of some of the food behind him, whether it be the roll or some of the sausages or some of the rashers, and the seagulls and the, the birds would be following him down, down the road. And that, was a, that, that would be an image I'd always remember of him. He'd just pick off little bits off the roll and you'd see the, the birds nearly used to wait for him as well. He was, he was that regular. Michael, by all accounts, would then go from the spar shop, birds in tow, and roam the Woodbine estate that surrounded it where people like Patricia and Paul Fox lived. Paul was so taken with him, he was moved to write a poem which was read out at Michael's funeral. He used to walk down this road uh, until probably late uh, the year before he died. He used to walk up uh, Woodbine, but he took to walking down this road for some reason. He used to stop at some houses yeah. and look as if, he, as if he knew the area quite well, you know, so. Yeah. So we, we, we got to see more of him, really, kind of walking down this road than we would and we had seen him in, in, um, in UCD, and that's how I got to write the poem about him, because I'd seen him so much. It was sad, and, I mean, you know, I, I used to often think about him when, when we'd come in in the evening, you know, and I'd be thinking, UCD, it'd be dark out and cold, and I hoped he'd, he'd be in somewhere, that he'd be getting some sort of, you know. But I think um, the security and you know, all over in UCD did look after him. They let him in, like, he, he didn't always stay out in the open, you know. But Paul Fox was one of many people who quietly observed Michael from his house, making sure he was at least still around. Of course, those concerned about him found it hard to discern exactly what he needed. I never had a conversation with him and I don't know if anyone did. And I did ask about him because I did wonder like who on college campus was minding him because he was minded the odd time you'd see he had a new coat or he'd have a new pair of shoes. And it was generally after Christmas time. So I did wonder who looked after him in those times. So I figured someone was. I didn't have a way of asking him. And it was just through word of mouth that I found out his name from a colleague. Do you know, I didn't know it for years, not until I came back as a lecturer to UCD. I didn't know his name before that. We now know that in Stephen McCarthy, there was one person in particular that was looking after Michael. And only he and a small handful of others knew exactly where Michael really slept. They kept it quiet to keep him as safe as they possibly could. We, we, we trampled through the bushes here. And I got a little bit nervous one day when I saw these bushes planted. And what they did was they, they've left a little bit of a gap for Michael. And occasionally when I go into the security office, what they'd say is, look, we haven't seen him for a couple of days, but we've seen him over here. He's on the cameras. 2017, the snow. And I think it was the heaviest snow we had in years, up to our knees at least. And I remember the services were very worried about him. And in fairness, one of the social workers and the doctors came out and they said, look, let's try and locate Michael and see what we can do from that's when they were taking people off the streets and bringing them in, try and give them some protection because the weather was, it was really incremental, it was very bad. Michael survived the winter of 2017 and continued to sleep in what we can only assume is what he regarded as his safe place, which myself and Steve are making our way to now. Throughout that winter, though he may not have known it, he was under the watchful eye of UCD security. It was only a couple of weeks later that the guys in security told me they'd opened up a room 
and uh, unbeknownst to the rest of us, and they'd, they'd put some biscuits and tea in there, and that's where Michael stayed during the snow of 2017. Michael then survived a pandemic, no less, when his entire environment disappeared. I actually really worried about him during the pandemic when campus was closed, and I did wonder, where is he getting his food, and is there someone looking after him? Yet he continued to eke out his existence, basing himself in the small lockup where he slept. Now, you imagine here at night, Michael coming in here, and the wind is blown, and it's right down the back of UCD. Uh, it's lonesome, and it's dark. It's nice today, but... Um, and then we go down these steps. So we'd approach the steps, and what I would have done was I'd have shouted out Michael's name from up here, and I might have heard a movement or whatever, and all I was doing was dropping up, dropping up a um, sleeping bag or maybe a cup of tea on a really cold night. You know, just anybody would do it. It's something we'd all do. So you see, what you do is you go down the steps, and you can see it's kind of an open shed with a roller shutter on it, but that roller shutter was always open to the elements, but he was protected on three other sides. And it's, it's, when we go down there, I'll show it to you now, it's quite big. It was hard enough, he was well able for it. I mean, we wouldn't be able for it, but he was 30, 40 years on the roads. And something I'd like to stress is Michael technically was homeless to the services, but was he true, truly homeless? I don't think so. I think Michael's home was UCD. And this is borne out by the fact that Michael at one point was offered a house by Dublin Corporation, but chose to continue the life as he had lived it for decades, sleeping in his small corner of the Belfield campus. He would have come down here at night and parked himself, taken off his shoes and rested up against the wall. And um, remind yourself, it's quite slippy with all the leaves and everything else. And there you are. Look, you can see it's the right side of the shed. Is it 20 metres by 10 metres in length? And Michael would have been up in the corner. And the leaves would have blown right up into the corner there, but he was well protected by the elements. And unfortunately, it was here this day, this day a year ago almost, that we found his body. And it was very sad. I'll show you exactly where he was lying. He was out of his corner. He was kind of lying to the right of the middle centre. And we would have given, he would have had a lot of sleeping bags in and around here. He didn't use them all the time. They were just left lying around the place. As I said, he was a hardy man, but he, he was lying here and the guards brought me up and they showed me the body and that's unfortunately where we found Michael. And I thought that was going to be the end. But the big thing is, he's somebody's father, son, brother. And somebody out there has to know Michael Byrne. In order to try to establish this, we continue to chase up any leads we can. And Damien has found another. When Michael did day, uh, old man Belfield, uh, one of the people that came forward to Gardy afterwards was a gentleman called Colm O'Brien, um, and he had a he had a great story to tell. Um, we did manage to track Colm down and and get in touch with him, and like I say, he 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 had quite an extraordinary story to tell. And it was in the late nineteen seventies that a Michael Byrne, a close friend of Colm O'Brien's in South Dublin, simply vanished. And this, markedly, was around the same time that Old Man Belfield was spotted by those working in homeless charities. This is Colm O'Brien here, and uh, my connection with Michael Bourne, the Michael Bourne that I know that was in, involved with me in swimming and water polo for many years, and he became my best man at my wedding. And uh, he was a godparent to one of my children, Nicola. And uh, 
since that we uh, you know we used to come up to the house every day and not every day so every year to bring presents to the two girls because he had to bring two presents simply because they were twins and uh, we enjoyed it and then we heard that Michael was missing and we didn't know where he was or what was happening so I was explaining to Nicola my daughter she was about six at the time uh, that Michael your godparent has gone missing and of course typical children you know does that mean I'll get no more presents I said yes it will yes so but we since that day we have not heard one iota from Michael Bourne however and we never stopped looking for him I mean the context of does anyone know about him and all that and some years later I did meet his brother in uh, somewhere in town Liffey Street I think it was and uh, I spoke to him briefly and he unfortunately didn't know anything he said Colin we have heard nothing there's no uh, connection with Michael whatsoever since I said that's unbelievable and he says it is he says but we haven't and that's it we just haven't so uh, carried on anyway and uh, nothing happened for years and years my own mother when she was alive often asked me have anybody found Michael Bourne yet and I said no mum nobody's found him I don't think anyone's looking anymore however life once goes on and I have now grandchildren myself and I uh, teach them to swim and we go to UCD the pool there 50 metre pool is wonderful and of course we met this lovely man in there old man Belfield as they call him but we didn't know any connection whatsoever except uh, the people in UCD all looked after him but food and never bothered him let him sit there in the the ambience of the whole pool and the, the the surrounding areas and nobody bothered him he was a just disabled looking man but nevertheless he was very nice in the context that he didn't bother anyone and never spoke to anyone and I certainly had no sort of thinking that this was a possible link to the missing Michael Bourne that I know however as time went on Michael uh, sorry the old man Belfield uh, unfortunately passed on and there was one of my friends uh, rang me and said Colin did you see the connection with old man Belfield and our Michael Bourne have a look he says his name is Michael Bourne old man Belfield I said that's unbelievable and uh, he said why don't you go down to Donnybrook Garda station and find out if they know anything which I did but still nobody seems to know who he was however a couple of days later at home on my answering machine I wasn't there and uh, a man who happens to be the brother of uh, Michael Bourne our Michael Bourne the man that's my best man um, he he rang and left a message and he says I hope this is the same Colin O'Brien I'm talking to and he said if so please ring me back and I'll leave you my number but unfortunately John didn't leave his number PM uh, Colin Michael's brother I just trying to get in touch with you if I have the right Colin and thank you if you can ring me back I'll, I'll leave my number with you In order to establish whether Colin's best man was indeed one and the same as old man Belfield, the Gardaí investigated this lead using traditional policing techniques and also scientific methods such as DNA analysis. They reached a definitive conclusion which has been confirmed to us by the most reliable possible sources. And that conclusion was that Colin O'Brien's best man was not old man Belfield. The door closes in our face and we start again. Breakfast on board and after roaming through Woodbine, Michael spent many of his afternoons on the campus itself. It's an irony that although nobody seemed to know him, at the same time, so many people did. One begins to realise after a while that his impact on the population of the university was seismic. He seemed to be a leveller, whether you were a freshman, a cleaner, a librarian or a high-ranking member of the academic staff. 
Okay, well, my name is Gavin Barrett. I'm a professor in the Sutherland School of Law in uh, University College Dublin. When he died, um, I, I have to say I was very sorry to hear that. And um, I, I, at, the, at the time I, I tweeted a bit and, and I, I just tweeted that I, I was sad to, to learn the news. And to my astonishment, um, uh, I, I found that that tweet got as much reaction, I think, as anything I've ever tweeted. It got hundreds of likes. Um, um, and I discovered that in, in knowing this man and uh, in, in, if you like, liking this man and, and, and meeting him frequently, um, that I was actually part of a community of a very large number of people in UCT that um, uh, I think this man who didn't really play a role, if you like, in the academic part of the university, uh, has left an abiding memory, I think, that will probably outlive the memory of, of most of us who actually do take part in the academic life, if you like, of the university. During his tenure, if we can call it that, at UCD, Old Man Belfield acquired a role as a kind of protective presence on the campus, a sort of big brother. Evie Nihudawan remembers that one story encapsulated this above all others. The kind of uh, urban myth that we heard when we were first years in, in UCD was that he had saved a girl from being raped one time and that's why everybody was so nice to him. Now, whether or not that happened, everybody was just nice to him anyways because I know he used to go into the restaurant and he'd get a hot meal most days. Um, and just everybody just took it that this is where he belonged. This was his home. In fact, the urban myth about a woman being attacked on campus is no myth. This is Giselle Scanlon, and she is the woman who was attacked on the grounds of UCD that night in the early 1990s. I had taken a bus from town, and when I got off the bus at UCD, I remember it was a very, very windy, rainy, squally night, and we had to walk up through campus to get to training or practice or whatever and on that particular night on that particular night we had Dramsock which was a play that I was producing at the time and I was rushing because I was running a bit late and I arrived on campus I was making my way up through campus and just from nowhere Somebody grabbed me and pushed me sideways. Sideways down onto the ground. And because it's so immediate, you think this is somebody you know messing because we were young and undergraduates and... But then you realise it's not and the reality hits you of what it is. It's dark, you're on your own. Somebody much bigger and stronger and taller than you. So then the panic and the fear sets in. And then almost as quickly as that happened, another person piles in on top of us, pulls that person off of me, throws him to the side in a in a very unviolent or non-violent fashion and I'm on the ground confused as to what's happening and then you look up and you see the eyes and you see Michael had the kindest eyes 
and you see the instant help and care and trust. I stood up, I was soaking wet and I was trying to get my bearings. And the safest place for me as a woman was to get two other women. So I headed towards college because that's where the lights were. And Michael, he didn't say anything on that occasion. He just calmly sort of walked along behind me and I was rushing to, to get away from the place which this thing happened at. But I felt I slowed myself down a little bit because Michael was there and I made my way back to college and he, every inch of the way, stayed with me. And people say he was a guardian to us and people say he was soft security to us and a friend to us. I think he was a lot more than those things to me that night. I think he prevented me from a future of mistrust. I think he saved me from a very serious attack and I'll be forever indebted to him. Back on campus, myself and Steve are just leaving when he spots another man near Michael's sleeping spot. And he's on the phone. How are you? You might remember me, do you? I haven't been around for years. How are you getting on? This has been recorded, right? Uh, we're just going to try and finish off with Michael Byrne, right? Documentary on one here. What we're trying to do is identify some of the relatives. You, you, you've been working here for... 20, 30, 40 20, years? 20 years, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you would have seen him and he would have been part of your life in the sense you would have known him? Yeah, well, I mean, there was always a sleeping bag in there and there was, there was a bit of a mattress. Um, I was cleaning the camp and a mattress I left out there now and he took yeah. it, he took it and he left. You might even remember the blue one in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes. So he was using that, obviously, in a few old sleeping bags. What I used to occasionally was I'd move the mattress to see did he come back and move it back in the corner. Yes, yeah. So he could disappear for a couple of weeks yeah. and whatever. And the only way you'd know was there a bit of action was, was you know, in the sense, in the sense, uh, was the mattress moved yeah. back into the corner. Well, so he was back. The leaves. Yeah. The leaves used to blow in there, you see. So the leaves, he used to kick them off the mattress, you see. Okay. So you'd right. know if there's no leaves on the mattress, he was, he was around. You, you know. and I should have hooked up years ago. Chase, this could have been an easy run for all of us. All the while, Damien O'Sullivan is searching and he finds what could be our final lead. Interestingly, in, in, in the general records office, um, one record that did uh, jump out at us was um, it was a record of a Michael Bourne who was indeed born on the, uh, January the 10th, but he was born a year earlier than what we believed old man Belfield was. This guy, Michael, in question, Michael Bourne, was born January the 10th, 1948. Um, he was born in Rathmines, and um, we looked into it and the family had, had long since uh, moved out of the area. We decided to head to the area anyway to ask some neighbours if they might remember anything. Tell me empty my dishwasher. 
we end up knocking on the door of Margaret Hall. Margaret remembers the family well, but although having a clear recollection of the siblings, curiously she doesn't ever recall meeting, seeing or hearing of a Michael. Margaret says that she'll make some inquiries with the older neighbours and a few days later she comes back to us to say a woman by the name of Anne, who has lived in the area longer than most, was willing to speak with us. I'm Anne Noonan and I'm over six, 70 years here, you know. And I, I knew Michael, well I knew him and I knew him to see. He was a very uh, handsome chap with lovely uh, dark wavy hair and uh, he palled with, around with my brother. I know Pete Lehman was married in 72, so it was way before that he palled with Michael. You know, they palled together. They used to go, I think, to dances and that in their younger days, you know. And Lee used to come down to pal with him down here, you know, and kick football. They used to go and kick football and that, you know. So, uh, yeah, I remember him. I could see him, yeah. We hightail it to Eamon's house and he tells us about Michael. But even better, he's holding six photographs of Michael when he was in his teens. They lost touch not long before Michael was spotted on the homeless scene in Dublin. Michael Bourne. We knew him as Mickey Bourne. And I knew him in the 50s and the 60s. And lost contact with him then when we start going with girls and getting married and that, you know. And he was a quiet chap. Uh, a lovely family. Um, and uh, wouldn't be too forward in the background, like, you know. And uh, I heard that he got married. I'm not too sure about that. I, I don't know what really happened to him after that, you know. We leave Eamon having got some basic information, but we're armed with these six grainy images of a teenage Michael Byrne, which Damien O'Sullivan takes a great interest in. One of the things that I suggested to the team was that we look at uh, securing the opinion of an expert in a computerised facial recognition. Um, essentially what we were trying to do was, was, was compare images of a teenage Michael Bourne with a 70-year-old old man Belfield. We had two pictures of old man Belfield uh, in order to make that comparison. But the quality of the photographs is not on our side. They were 50 plus years old um, and they were of a very low resolution. So we, we, we took them and we had them scanned through a high resolution machine. Um, when that was done, uh, we then took the pictures to a, a department in Dundee University who actually specialise in this type of technology. A few days later, we're contacted by Dr Tobias Holton, an expert in forensic art and facial recognition. There were certain things, there were certain differences that were occurring, so certainly the likes of the introduction of facial creases, the changes in hair length, colouring and style, and certainly the, the, the nose. You know, I mean, it's, it's sometimes believed that our nose and ears get bigger as we get older, but in reality, it's actually gravity is having a greater impact on these features. Um, so that can also create a, a distortion of the face. So from from when how we appear when we're younger. So I can tell from the, the general assessment that there were a few general characteristics that are similarly observable between old man Belfield and Mr. Bone. Um, but individually or in combination, these features only really allow for a superficial comparison. So the relative facial geometry may appear roughly similar, but 
observation of identifiable landmarks is, I mean, unfortunately, was severely restricted by the image quality or the fact that aspects of the image was obscured by hair growth with Old Man Belfield or shadow with the some of the Mr. Byrne images. As conservative as it was, I can still see that it lends what we would say is limited support to the assertion that Old Man Belfield and Mr. Michael Byrne are one of the same person. Um, so this does not discriminate the possibility, but more substantial forms of evidence are essential to confirm identity. So, you know, it's, it's showing a sign that, you know, it's worth continuing the investigation. We do, and weeks later, we have a definitive result. We find the rat mines Michael Byrne. Not only that, he even agrees to say one sentence on tape with us. Yeah, you, you have the wrong Michael Byrne. I'm alive well now, I'm 74. Our final lead closed. Although frustrating, I can't help the sneaking regard I've developed for his elusiveness. In fact, while at the intrigue stopped there, I've been convinced throughout the process that Michael was non-verbal. But the stories Michael has left behind won't even let us establish that much. Before I leave Giselle Scanlon, the woman who was attacked on campus that night in the 1990s, she says this to me. Many years later, I was in... Donnybrook. It was the bus stop outside the Donnybrook bus depot. And I was minding my own business, you know, you know, we're all on our phones or watching traffic. And when I looked to my right, it was Michael. So I I couldn't believe it, you know, I, I after numerous years. So I said, Michael, do you remember me? And he sort of looked. I said, years ago, you saved me from a really vicious, what could have become a very vicious attack. And I said, Michael, you were so good. And you were so kind to me that night. How? How could I ever repay you? And I'd never heard him speak before. He didn't speak to me on the night many years before that. And he said, anyone would have done it. That's the way life is. And so he remains an enigma. Old man Belfield, Michael Byrne. The man who left no footprint, but whose mark on the world seems to be everywhere. He certainly left an impression on Evie Nihuloan and many thousands like her. When he died, um, we weren't on campus and I was actually on maternity leave. So I didn't really see a reaction or, or know what the reaction was on campus. I mean, there was a massive outpouring on social media and I was quite sad myself. Um, I felt very sad. I felt a little bit guilty, I felt lonely for him, but I know people were sad and I miss him now on campus, I have to say. I'm only back from maternity now since um, August and it is not nice to know he's not around. Look at me getting emotional, that's really silly. Um, but it's, there's a really nice um, uh, memorial to him in physics on the ground floor. This is where he used to sit. It's just a nice photograph of Michael um, where he used to sit on the ground floor in physics because I think that was kind of home for him and everybody who used to pass around there kind of knew it and respected him and you know even in my own school of maths if there was a tea coffee going on with all the the faculty you know 
we'd invite him to have some whatever. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just sad. You might remember Paul and Patricia Fox. Paul had written a poem after Michael died. It was during the worst of COVID, so there was a tiny gathering at the funeral service UCD organised for him. But Paul and Patricia remember what happened after that service because the hearse rolled the roads in his death that Michael had paced in his life. We, we were there when they, were there, when they lined the streets um, outside of um, Woodbine. They lined that road um, and it was, a, it was a great turnout from the, the neighbours. The people that knew him. Yeah. He went to the spar down on Woodbine and um, all the people came out and um, cheered when he went by. We all clapped and gave him the send-off we thought he deserved. As a parting gesture, Steve wants to read Paul's poem, the poem he delivered at Michael's final stay at Belfield, his funeral service. Michael Byrne, we never knew your name, who walked our road. Now we're at night, you lay your head, probably no fixed abode. And yet behind the beard and many coats, there beat a heart. You walked among us, walked among us worlds apart. And not by chance to pass the way you did in UCD to graduate from life, to set you free. Free to roam the roads of no return. Rest in peace, we never knew you, Michael Byrne. And this is the thing, we don't know where Michael came from. Somebody, he's a father, brother, son. Somebody has to know a Michael Byrne, somewhere in the country. And wouldn't it be a fitting tribute and a lovely end if we could get closure on this? And there's a, there's a, a headstone in Kilchernan and there's plenty of room to write all that needs to be said. <laughs>